Thanks, David. Here's uh, Colin Thomas now to bring our reading from the second book of Kings. The reading from 2 Kings, chapter 6, and you can find it on page 358 in the Green Bibles. Page 358. 2 Kings, chapter 6, starting at verse 8. Now, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set my camp in such and such a place. Elisha, the man of God, sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? Oh, none of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. Go and find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He's in Dotan. Well, then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army of horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all round Elisha. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And Elisha told them, this is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. And after they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. And then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. And then the king of Israel saw them and he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they'd finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. This is the word of the Lord. Colin, thank you very much for reading. I'd love you to keep that open, page 358. We're going to refer to it in due course. Uh, and if you've got the yellow sheet available, you'll see roughly where I'm going to go for the next 15 or 20 minutes. Um, and then these sheets hopefully will be useful for us as we kind of unpick the content of the teaching today on Tuesday or Wednesday in this coming week. So do bring these sheets with you, although there will be spares there. Let's pray. Let's borrow Elisha's prayer. Father, please open our eyes that we may see. Teach us from your word 
Equip us to live kingdom lives here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, There's quite a few things to cover and not an awful lot of time, so I'm going to go at a bit of a canter. We all have a worldview, every single one of us. We have a way in which we view the world. It will have come about through a whole range of factors, our our education and our background, our our family uh, uh, and our formative years. Uh, It will have come about through just kind of processes and working out kind of in a subconscious level what works, what doesn't work. What wins approval and feels good? What makes me safe? Basic, subconscious questions. You may not be consciously asking yourself those questions day by day by day, but subconsciously they are forming a worldview. The way in which we see the world around us. The way in which we help ourselves to live. Different parts of the world have a different way of viewing the world. We have different worldviews. Take time. The way in general, I'm generalizing here, but in general, in Europe, we, we, we sort of measure time very religiously and strictly. We ha- we'll have watches and clocks and alarms. We, we, we seek to make the most of every second, a minute, an hour. But, and again, I'm generalizing, but in general, if you live in Africa, they have a very different view of time. You can call a meeting at such and such a time, and it may take place at that time, or kind of when everyone's got around to turning up there. And then it'll kind of take as long as it takes, really. Time is seen and viewed in a very different way in other parts of the world. Or take, um, take the economy. The current, that, that's been a, you know, a very prevalent worldview for sort of Western and so-called developed uh, parts of the world. It's, it's, it's informed and undergirded much of how we've understood who we are in relation to others and in relation to the resources that we use and the world in which we live. But our economic worldview, by our I mean the kind of developed Western world, quite different from other parts of the world who place much more value and riches in community or family than they do in commodities and things. Our worldview is betrayed by all sorts of little idioms and phrases. I wonder which of these have shaped your worldview. You've got to look after number one. You make your own luck. All things in moderation. That last one is one that just rings through. I can think of members of my family as I was growing up. That was a little dictum. All things in moderation. I wonder the extent to which that has seriously shaped my worldview. Really? All things in moderation? Class A drugs? Incest? Murder? All things in moderation? God? Just a little bit of God? Moderate amounts of God? Rather than complete abandonment to God? That little dictum sounds great, sounds so reasonable. But is it biblical? Is it the kind of worldview that God would encourage me to have? So what is your worldview? And how does it match up to the biblical worldview? What the Bible encourages us to see and understand of the world in which we live. Well, the Bible begins, the very first chapter, the very first verse, 
kind of sets up the biblical worldview. Genesis 1 and verse 1, I, I guess you'll know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, who is spirit, it just is. And therefore, the kind of heavens, the spiritual realm, just are. But within the, just the pre-existence of the spiritual realms, there is the created world order, planets that we know about, including our own, Earth. And the Bible worldview is basically this. That there are two realms or spheres of influence that simultaneously impact our lives. There are two realms or spheres of influence or power that simultaneously at the same time impact our lives. There are the, what the Bible calls the heavenly realms or the spiritual realms. The, the, those two phrases are interchangeable, spiritual or, or heavenly realms. The, the word in the Greek uh, used in the New Testament, which last week, for example, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, when he talks about the heavenly realms, the Greek word is, um, is epiureino. Oh, it's a long Greek word, I can't even say it. But it basically means of the heavens, of the heavens. And so I guess, I think the terminology I'm, I'm probably going to use is, is heavenly realms. Um, but it's synonymous with spiritual realms. It's, it's that realm, that sphere of influence and power that we can't perceive with the natural eye. It's reality, it's present reality, but we're not able to see it with the naked eye in the way that we can, with the naked eye, perceive the natural realm. Earth and the things of earth that we can touch and measure and taste and see and hear. So we live in one world, the Bible says, but at the same time there are two realms of influence. The things that influence, if I walk into this lectern, it'll fall over, it'll bash or bruise me. If I bump into you, I, you know, we, we affect and influence one another on the, in the natural realm, the realm that we can see with our five and perceive with our five senses. But at the same time, there is an unseen realm that has just as much impact if we are alive and awake and aware of it. I used the analogy just before Christmas, let me remind you, of, of uh, within the spectrum of light, there are various colours that we can see, red and blue and green. I'm wearing a, a green jacket. I'm wearing black trousers. You can see that. But there are also colours in the spectrum of light that we can't see with the natural eye. Ultraviolet, infrared. But they're no less real. They're around. Much the same way there are sound waves, aren't there? You can hear my voice now through the speaker system. You can't hear Capital Radio or Radio 4 or Heart FM. But if you had a transistor, you could tune in. And, and Radio 4 is all around. <laughs> you can't actually hear it simply because you haven't got a transistor. But if you had a transistor, you could hear Radio 4 right here and now. Or Capital or whatever it might be. So there are things that we perceive and there are other realities that we aren't able naturally to perceive but that are no less real for that. Examples of the one world, two realm reality that the Bible encourages us to be aware of. 
actually more than encourage it says this is the only way Jesus I think would say this is the only way in which we're going to live effective effective and authentic lives for him this is the only way in which we're going to live effectively in the kingdom of God I've tried to depict that with this diagram but I'm going to skip that now I'll try and explain what that diagram is all about on Tuesday and Wednesday so if you're dying to know that's when you need to turn up But let's get to this passage that we had read earlier, this little story of Elisha in the history of Israel. Aram was uh, a, uh, well they had been a kind of sort of ally, but as you probably know in the regions and kingdoms of the world at that time they were constantly making treaties and falling out of them and so on. And so Aram and Israel at the time of this passage are at war, well it says that verse 8 look, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. And the king of Aram is getting really cheesed off because he's trying to outsmart Israel and every time he seeks to outsmart Israel we'll go there and, and cut them off or we'll go there and head them off Israel seemed to know what he's up to and the king of Israel seems to be one stage ahead of Aram such that he's convinced look at that in verse um, uh, thank you, thank you verse 11 do you, want to, you did the talk verse 11 I just lost my place there Uh, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel in other words there's a spy someone must be spying who is it and they say no no it isn't a spy it's just that they've got Elisha and Elisha lives in this world but is awake and alive to two realms he's aware of Aram and the armies and the present physical reality but he's also online to God as it were Lord, show me what's going on in the unseen world, in the, in the heavenly realms. And Elisha is listening to what the Lord is saying. And the Lord is helping Elisha, and through Elisha obviously he's helping Israel to outwit Aram. Notice how the king of Aram responds. He, he fights in this sort of um, spiritual realm he fights in the natural realm he gets lots of forces chariots verse 14 horses and chariots and a strong force a whole army look at all the effort in the natural realm to overcome one man and they array around Elisha look at verse 15 well, I, I'm with the servant this is what I do so much of the time I wake up and I look at the things in the natural realm and I panic do you do that? servant of the man of God I, Elisha got up and went out early next morning an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city oh no my lord what shall we do don't be afraid Elisha says verse 16 those who are with us are more than those who are with them see the servant can only see the army in the natural realm he can see the enemy Aram but Elisha has learned to see what's behind all of this there's a sovereign God who's covenanted to Israel, who's on their side, who wants to bless them, doesn't want Aram to prosper. Look what Elisha prays to help the servant. Verse 17, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. See beyond Aram's army to what lies behind in the unseen realm. Help him to tune in to the spiritual realities and the forces of good. Help him to see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, verse 17. And he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots and fire all round Elisha. 
Other examples you'll see on the list there. Uh, Job's suffering. The book of Job. It's not actually, a, uh, and we can have one or two of these verses up on the, on the screen. But it's not about human suffering in general. It's about a particular believer's suffering. But it all comes about like this. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. You see how Satan has certain jurisdiction. He can move, he's free to move from the, if you like, the, 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 the spiritual realm. He's obviously representing evil forces in the spiritual realm. He is able to roam to and fro in the natural realm. And he picks on Job. And uh, we'll go, I'll go more into the story of Job, on, and we'll look at it as a bit of a study on Tuesday or Wednesday. But we can see, that's just to illustrate the impact of the unseen realm on the natural realm. Or look at what Jesus prays to Peter in Luke chapter 22. Simon, Simon, uh, Simon Peter. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Let's pause there a minute. That's very telling. Just as Satan in the story of Job has certain jurisdiction but limitations, Jesus, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Yes, Satan is going to really turn you over. He's going to really try and get some stuff on you, Peter. But he's got to ask. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. An allusion surely to his denial of Christ three times, to his restoration three times by Jesus, and to his part in growing the early church. But do you see how all of that is, takes in the, the heavenly realms impacting our lives here on earth? And the influence of the heavenly realms on Peter is fascinating to track. Look at these two examples, both almost next to each other in Matthew's Gospel. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, when Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man. You didn't work this out, your own human ingenuity. It wasn't just your kind of a clever guy. But by my Father in heaven, revelation from the heavenly realms. Peter, at that moment, able to tune in to the reality of who this teacher, this carpenter's son, from, from Nazareth, who he really is. You're the Christ. I see it. Just as the servant of Elisha saw the chariots of fire, Peter has a kind of aha moment. Ah, oh, I see it. I know who you are. Revelation from the heavenly realms brought to bear in the natural realm. But you know, only a few moments later, look at this. Uh, as uh, Peter, Jesus, just to fill in, Jesus has said, look, I'm going to go on to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified and then raised again on the third day. I'm going to be handed over to my enemies, as it were. This is what's going to happen. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That, that's just moments after Peter has said, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter. And now he looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. What's Jesus saying there? Is Jesus saying that Peter is Satan? No. As he looks at the physical form of Peter, Jesus is addressing Satan. 
He's speaking to the unseen realms that have influenced at that moment Peter in the natural realm. So Peter has come out with these, oh no, no, that mustn't happen. And Jesus has discerned that that is the enemy trying to get at Jesus, to knock him off his path of trial and test and suffering that will take him to Jerusalem. And Jesus is addressing Satan as he looks at Peter. That's a key verse, that. Because it reminds us of what Paul says, and we looked at it last week. Ephesians 6 and verse 12, our struggle, our battle is not against flesh and blood. But against the powers and principalities, the rulers and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's vital that we recognize we're not fighting one another. This is not a battle, a struggle against flesh and blood. But against the influence, in this case the evil, malevolent influence that works behind and energizes things that take place and happen, things that are said, things that are done in the natural realm. Some examples from scripture of one world, two realms, many more that we could pluck and we'll look at some of these in detail midweek. Finally, the western mind resists the biblical world view. Don't you know that to be true? Aren't you struggling with what I've just been talking about now? Some of you, as, as I have, and I do, wrestling with this. It sounds so primitive. It sounds so basic. Didn't we leave that, I mean, centuries ago? It's sort of the superstition of the Middle Ages and, beyond, and, and before. I want to suggest that we in the West, every single one of us here, have been hugely, disproportionately shaped. Our worldview has been shaped by the various revolutions that I've, I've kind of outlined on the back of the sheet, in, just in precy form. But they've shaped the way in which we think in the West. So we are prey, I think, to the crippling impact of rationalism. That's what fuels this idea that all this talk of demons is really a little bit fanciful. Or of there being kind of spiritual energies that can impact us today. Oh, we're in, I've got a computer. Do you know, my computer now, your computer now, is more powerful than the computer that was used to send and put men on the moon. It is extraordinary what we have control of and power of today. I'm in control. I can press a few buttons and shift a few things in the money markets. I've got power. I, I, I've been educated. I've read books. I've read essays. Really. All this sort of unseen hocus pocus. But I want to suggest that we've become far too over-reliant on our five senses that are finely attuned to the natural world but have dulled us and rendered us over the centuries, rendered us particularly recently, and I'm talking really in the West, rendered us ignorant and impotent when it comes to things in the unseen realm. But who would deny the existence and the reality of 
forces both of good as well as evil at work and at play in our world today. I held up that headline last week, Beyond Belief. How can this happen? That, that's a bold ignition, uh, admission, ignition, admission from the independent newspaper that the independent newspaper has a worldview and here is something that is beyond the understanding of that worldview. My rational mindset cannot understand how this evil can take place. It's beyond belief. Well, yes, it's beyond belief to an enclosed rational mindset, but it's not beyond belief if we engage with the heavenly realms and we ask God what is going on in the world that he created, it becomes quite clear and he begins to reveal the patterns of sin and abuse and neglect of his ways that have manifested themselves out and rolled themselves out into the terrible stuff that we know goes on in our world today. Think about this. Think of all that we have in the West, particularly since the political and social and industrial revolution. Think of the wealth and the education. Think of the knowledge. Think of the power that we've had, the freedom to travel. Think of the British Empire just all over the globe in what was a couple of centuries ago. And all the influence and power, and yet at the same time, over that same time period, has the church in the West... Has it had a similar kind of power and impact? I want to suggest that the, the church in the West, the, the, let's just take the Church of England, has been compromised beyond belief because of the way in which we've colluded with a modern Western mindset. And we've grown dull and incapable of understanding reality in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realms. And what happens, as C.S. Lewis once remarked in the preface of uh, his wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters, is that we, we, we spin to two equal and opposite sort of poles. One is that we afford far too much interest in the spiritual realm. We become obsessed particularly with the malevolence. You see all the sort of horror films and all that kind of thing, and this kind of slightly unhealthy uh, interest, macabre interest in spiritual evil on the one hand. I think much more likely, much more prevalent, much more endemic in many more of us is the other, actually just an apathy, no interest. It's just a sort of little hobby for people if you're into that kind of little subjective opinion. It isn't real. It doesn't really impact me. I become apathetic and dulled. Paul warns us, final verse, in his second letter to the Corinthians. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. For too long, the church in the West has tried to rationalize in this spiritual battle and the struggle that we from time to time experience. They've used the wrong tools for the job. We need spiritual tools to do a spiritual job. And the great thing is that in Christ, God has given us everything we need. I'm going to stop there. 
uh, there's much we could talk about and, and, and inquire and ask. Uh, if it's slightly unnerving, slightly edgy, you feel uncomfortable at this thought of the present reality of the spiritual realm, particularly in the context of battle and evil, then next week's talk is vital as we seek to gird ourselves with the knowledge of who we really, truly are in Jesus Christ. Our identity in Christ is next week, and it follows on from this talk this morning. Amen.